Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Vandemore is the former Stanford University sailing coach and the first person sentenced in the Varsity Blues college admissions scandal. He's now speaking out, uh, speaking out about what happened. This comes on the heels of the release of his new book, Rigged Justice, How the College Admissions Scandal Ruined an Innocent Man's Life. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. John, how you doing? Good. Thank you very much for having me. Good. I always like to say uncorking a story is about kind of uncorking the stories behind the stories. And that's probably an apt topic for for us today. But um, John, just tell me, where does where does your story begin here? So it, it really begins on as my book begins on the uh, the day that the FBI and IRS uh, show up at my door. Um, and at, you know, 7, 730 in the morning, uh, there's two agents that show up and my world completely changed. What I thought to be true was completely wrong. So what was, I mean, what was going on in your house? Like right before that moment happened, did, did you have any sense that, that, that day was going to be unlike any other in your life or? No, not at all. Uh, I had a, a three-year-old and one-year-old at the time and um, they're five and three now, but they um, yeah, it was just about putting on, you know, clothes to get to daycare, trying to get to work. I was still in, you know, a Red Sox t-shirt and my, uh, my pajama pants with pretty much throw up all over me. Um, so I must've looked fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they, they probably come, you know, they, they want to come at the moment you least expect it, I would imagine. But, um, so what, I mean, what, I mean, at that moment when you opened the door and, and you saw these agents there, um, what, you know, what just, what, what was going through your head? I mean, was it, was it just pure shock? Was it, you know, you got the wrong guy, you're at the wrong house. <laughs> he lives over there. Right. Maybe I should have said that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was terrified. Um, when I opened that door and they presented their badges, um, just like you would see in the movies. Uh, I was, I was terrified and, and really confused because I didn't know why they were there. Um, but I was born and raised that, you know, you help authority, uh, wherever it is. So I invited them into my, my house and offered them water and coffee. Um, and was happy to answer anything they, they needed to do. I had nothing to hide at that moment. Yeah. Okay. So when, when it, when you realized why they were there, when they explained why they were there, um, just kind of, what, what did they tell you? I mean, how did they, how did they position it to you? You know, what was, uh, what was going on there? It was, it was really unclear. So the, the whole process, the whole interview took about two hours, I'd say. And they didn't really get to the heart of the matter until after about an hour of kind of, 
not nonsense questioning, but very much fluff questions um, surrounding me and my history and recruiting and so on. And then I looked down and I could see the FBI agent was reading from a script. And on that script, the name Rick Singer was there. Mm-hmm. And instantly in my head, I was like, oh, wow. Um, did he do something wrong? Like, what do I know? What can I help with? Um, that was obviously, I was wrong about that. Um, but sitting there, I thought that's what it was. Then the whole interview kind of turned on its head. Uh, the IRS agent kind of took over in a very forceful Boston accent that I knew very well. Um, you know, kind of came in and was like, no, you, you have the system with Rick Singer and you're taking bribes and everything else for it. And I was like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not what we're doing. That's not my relationship with Rick. And they're like, no, you need to admit this right now. This is what you've been doing. It was just very pointed, very direct. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, I was still confused by it. It's, well, what am I being charged with? Am I being charged? And they're like, well, we don't know yet. We don't know what there is going to happen. And, um, you know, you should probably get a lawyer. I was like, well, what law did I break? They're like, And the IRS agent got mad, got really mad. and was like, seeming like I didn't know this. Well, you know, Stanford takes money from the government, so you can be charged with bribery. I was like, well, I don't think I would have ever made that connection in my life. Um, and was just still confused what's going on. They agreed when they left and they left saying, oh, you have such a beautiful family and you seem like such a nice guy. And they left saying, hey, we're going to help you get a lawyer and see how it goes from there. So I didn't know where I was. Um, In the end, I got some advice I talk about in the book from a friend that maybe it was going to be me witnessing against Rick Singer. Um, But certainly, as I learned later, it was the other way around. So just, you know, tell, tell the audience who Rick Singer is, because I know that the admission scandal, um, you know, it's, it's a couple of years gone by and, and names may not be fresh, but just remind us all who, who Rick Singer is and it was. So Rick Singer was the mastermind or the ringleader of the college admissions scam. And so what he's been famous for doing is, well, two parts, really. One is that he took money from parents that were using him to get their kids into college. Uh, the university of their choice. And he would use that money to bribe athletic directors or coaches um, from what we know about. And then the other part of it is that they would also use money to help the kids take the SAT or ACT or take it for them or correct their answers. It kind of went on and on. Um, but he was basically working for money to get kids into college. Okay. And, and you had known who Rick Singer was obviously before these agents showed up to your house. What what was your relationship with him? Like, how were you guys, you know, how, how did you know him? So my relationship total with Rick is probably about six interactions um, total. And I first knew him because he called me. Um, he called me up one day when I'm driving home from the, the boathouse is about 20 minutes away from campus. So I'm driving home after practice and he calls me up and so introduces himself, says that he's on campus talking to other coaches and would love to talk to me about recruiting. Now that on a face is, is weird because sure, a recruiter makes sense for football, basketball, and so on. Sailing, not so much. I had never heard of one in about 20 years of coaching. Um, but, you know, I was at Stanford. I was like, oh, there's something that could be different, cutting edge. I could be doing something different for that. So I agreed to meet with him. And he came in uh, like he owned the place. You know, the athletic department at Stanford is, is very confusing where all the offices are. And he made his way through there past security, I don't know how, and kind of slid right into my office. Um, 
and sat down and he shows up in you know t-shirt shorts you know flip-flops um and a visor just totally relaxed and kind of slouches into a chair and just starts talking to me mm -hmm. got it um so what what do you think of him what do you think of this like t-shirt and, and sandals clad you know guy coming uh to talk to you about recruiting for sailing you know at first i was very standoffish or, or taken aback from it but he was really good at talking to me uh, i mean obviously i can see that now but he made me feel really comfortable you know he was really talking about wanted to know all about sailing he was totally in the clear that he knew nothing about sailing or sailing recruiting but he wanted to know more and that was kind of my bread and butter right like i would love talking about my sport my student athletes and recruiting and he just wanted to know more and really knew how to kind of push my buttons you know like oh you need more i'm sure the athletic director you know athletic department isn't giving you enough what can we do to help you that type thing um and really was kind of understanding my plight yeah. Um, as we go through. So it's kind of like master manipulation, master manipulation, it sounds like. And it's interesting, you know, you talk about the the IRS agent and the, and the FBI agents who were at your house. They're kind of imploring, employing rather like these very conversational techniques to get you talking. And it sounds like, uh, you know, in, in, in another way, um, you know, Rick Singer's doing the same thing, um, like, you know, getting you warmed up and building rapport with you and and all that. Um, when when did things so so after the after you had that um uh morning with with the agents coming to the house and you have your your two-hour meeting when did things really start to heat up after that so there was a period of time probably about two weeks where i had to fill out all these forms to get a lawyer and, and kind of work through that um that kind of delayed things and then once i finally got a lawyer i got the call from this court reported lawyer in boston and he said, you know, introduce himself and was like, what is this all about? And so I gave him a brief rundown, but I thought in the end that they wanted me to witness against Rick Singer. He was like, oh, okay, that, that's easy, no problem. Um, so he calls the prosecutor's office and calls me back about two, two hours later and says, you got to sit down for this. I was like, what? He's like, actually, it's the other way around. They have Rick Singer um, on tape wanting to witness against you and that you were taking bribes from him uh, and they're going to charge you with federal bribery uh, and Rick Singer's, you know, the guy blowing the whistle on you. Mm -hmm. um, I was just, you know, just devastated. I don't even know if that's a strong enough word. Um, just totally taken aback um, by all of that. And then everything kind of ramped up really quickly. Um, the, the prosecutor then made us wait for another almost week before he would tell us what the charges were and that we knew at the time that he wanted to offer me a plea deal, but we didn't know what it was an entail. And so it was torture. I had to go along with life as normal. You know, I was coaching every day. We were in the heart of our season. Um, you know, I'm there with my family, my young family, and just kind of living every day, but knowing this is kind of looming over me um, was, was just brutal. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be, you know, to say it's like a, a storm clouds on the horizon is probably an understatement. You've got the young family, you've got a career. I mean, what's what's going through your mind with regards to, to to all of that? You know, your family, your career with kind of what's, you know, what what could happen to you? Yeah, you know, in the end, all the choices I made since the IRS and the FBI showed up my door were about my family. Um, I, 
I learned pretty quickly, especially when I knew charges were being brought against me, that my career was over. Um, even if I could go to court and prove myself, it was still over or it was going to be over for a period of time. Um, and so that was just not a concern anymore. It was about protecting the people I love, including the, the Stanford student athletes. Um, what could I do to, to best make this through this for them as well um, was really important to me. But yeah, it was, it was devastating and hard for my family to go through this. Everything we had known was kind of attached and based into Stanford. Yeah. So how did the university take it? I mean, were they on your side? Did they support you? Um, did they throw you under the bus or what? You know, how, how did, how did the, uh, the employer take it? So uh, to learn, and I actually started learning this during that interview with the FBI and IRS agent, is they had already approached Stanford. Um, they had already agreed that Stanford was going to testify against me. Um, so they actually, the IRS and FBI and the prosecutor wouldn't even let me talk to Stanford um, and explain myself, which was really frustrating to me because I was like, look, I, I didn't, you know, all the money went to Stanford. I didn't take any money. I think that we could have a conversation here about this, but they didn't want to hear any of that. Um, and so Stanford took the most extreme nuclear option they could with me. Uh, the morning that I went to Boston to plead guilty, uh, by lunchtime, I had an email in my inbox telling me that I was fired with cause. Um, that meant that I had 30 days to move out of my house um, on campus and that you know our health insurance was now gone and that my kids were being kicked out of daycare so i had to start all over again yeah so during that time um where did you find support you know where did you where did you find the strength to kind of keep going because i have to imagine that all of this coming down at once you know, between you know just i mean the accusations um you know taking a plea deal having to, to plead guilty losing your job um where did you where did you find the strength to keep going on well, certainly my wife um, was a big source of it. She was a rock and she was going through hell as well. But we've been so lucky to be part of the sailing community and the sailing community really picked us up or at least part of it. And it, it was, we had incredible friends that had worked with my wife that uh, had a house over in Half Moon Bay area um, where we live now and was let, allowing us to move into that house until um, we kind of got on our feet. Uh, and that was incredible. And we were there for a whole summer um, before we, we could rent uh, our own apartment. And it was just amazing that they that one step made the, the biggest difference for us. Okay. And when, when did the idea to write a book about this experience and to tell your side of it come, come to mind for you? And what was that process developing it like? You know, it first came to an idea um, after my, well, it happened before my sentencing that I got some great advice from uh, a friend of a friend that was doing crisis management. And he said something that didn't kind of resonate with me until after, you know, after the summer of me being sentenced and so on. But he said that the only way for my story to get out there and to be true is that it, I could do two things. I could write a book or take an op-ed out in the New York times. Mm. Um, and it's expensive for the op-ed times. And uh that was, I kind of laughed that off at the time, but after, you know, after June 12th, 2019 and getting sentenced and kind of starting to look to move my life forward, because then I knew I wasn't going to jail, but I had to do this house arrest and everything else. Um, I kind of came back to those words and was like, oh, that's true. That if I want to tell my story and, and the reason why I want to tell my story is for my kids. 
um, you know, all too soon, they're going to Google me. Um, they're five and three right now. And I can already picture iPhones in their hands. Um, but they're going to Google me and they're going to see awful things. Um, and some things that are just completely inaccurate uh, or not fair. And so I wanted to have my voice out there. And so a book seemed the way, the only way to, to really do that. And luckily, again, we had incredible friends that, that helped me through that process. I mean, had you ever written a book before or, or anything over like 15, 20 pages before? No, no. I'm trying to think back of what the longest like history uh, report I had to write in college was. And that was probably the longest length I had. Um, so this was all new to me. So, I mean, this this program is, is listened to by, um, I mean, readers, but a lot of, you know, aspiring authors as well um, as, a, as a source of advice. Um, so w- when you started to write it, um, what was your process like? I mean, obviously you want to get the truth out there, but you know, you've got a few hundred or so blank pages in front of you. Um, what was your writing process like and kind of walk me through like how you structured, um, how you knew you wanted to structure the story? Yeah. First off, when I, um, wrote the deal with Harper one, they were incredible and had someone help me. Okay. Um, and that was, that was that was everything. Um, and I became really close to this person and, um, was almost like my therapist because <laughs> I would, she was on the East coast and I was on the West coast. So I'd get up at five in the morning and walk on the beach and we would just talk through it. And our biggest thing was how we we're going to open the book and let the opening kind of lead us down the path as we went. And really the, the, the scene that came to us right away is the FBI and IRS at the door. Mm-hmm. Because that's what everybody really needs to know. Page one, don't open the door to the FBI and IRS. Get a lawyer and reschedule. Because you can do that. That's legal. Um, and that was kind of the, the biggest thing to set the stage of how powerful this really was and how much it kind of wrenched my life. And then the next thing we kind of went to was, okay, now we've set the stage. We obviously have to put in a lot of the legal part of it. And that can become really complicated and in the weeds. How do we explain that um, and explain that I'm different um, and all of it, especially because there's so much out there in the media. It's like in the book where we're battling when everything else is out there, all the disinformation that's there. And so we went through it step by step and decided to weave my life into it as well to give it to have people realize that this is a human story. Um, this isn't just about a case or legal theory. This is a real human story. Yeah. So you had the publisher then before you even started writing. I did. Yeah. Got it. Okay. I, I would imagine with a story like yours, um, you, you probably had a, uh, you know, your, your pick of publishers I'd imagine, or, or did one just approach you to, uh, to, to do it? You know, it was kind of the opposite. Um, the publishers I think were pretty scared of the story because of how widely it was covered. Um, that they didn't want to cover it to begin with. I went to a few publishers and then eventually got a meeting with Harper One and sat in and just spent like three hours telling my story to the editor. Um, and she started crying. Uh, yeah. It was just like, oh my God. And it was like, the story has to be told. Got it. Okay. And then did you find a literary agent after that to do the deal or did you work with them directly? No, uh, I found the literary agent first. And okay. my literary agent isn't really like an agent. <laughs> um, she'd never been an agent before. She was uh, retired. Um, she was a VP at Simon & Schuster mm-hmm. um, at Dean Corns, And she's amazing. Knew the publishing world. Wasn't really like an agent. 
which was good because I wasn't really like a writer. So we matched. I was going to really say, well. it's like if she wasn't, you weren't an author before. So <laughs> yeah, so a match made in heaven. It worked out really well that way. Um, but she believed in me and my story and had the connections to kind of get my foot in the door, um, which really meant everything to be able to make this happen. Yeah. I mean, as, as you were kind of going through the writing process and, and the collaboration um, with the editor, what did, what did you learn about yourself during that process? Like when you, when you start to actually tell your story, what did, what insights into yourself, you know, did, did you have? Oh, um, many more than I thought was going to happen. I, I knew that the book was going to be cathartic in a way to tell my story, but when the decision was made to really put my life into it a lot more, um, that really changed things. Um, and, you know, my editor was really big and be like, you need more here. <laughs> you know, you're not being vulnerable enough. You got to keep pushing it. And it was emotional for me. I mean, I would on those beach walks and, you know, I'm recording over the phone. Um, what I'm saying, I just start bawling. Um, I'm sure people walked by, it was five in the morning. So not many people, but being like, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> you know, but I'm having like these emotional epiphanies as I go, because, the only way for the story to ring true is to be completely vulnerable yeah. and kind of let yourself go and, and be totally honest with your failings because that's the human condition. And that was a big part of this book for me. And it's, you know, I think, uh, I think it's hard for men to do that too, you know, to, to become vulnerable because, you know, we're taught, you know, from a very young age that you have to be tough and hold things close to the vest. And, and I found you know, through my own writing, um, process or processes that the path to the really good stuff is to really just expose yourself to the point where sometimes I'll write something and my wife will be like, you really want to put that out there you know, for everyone to read? That's kind yep. of personal. I'm like, well, I kind of do, you know, and it's, it's kind of the risks that we, we have to take. You know, and I think the person that helped me push through that, and she doesn't know me, I don't know her, but I know her work really well is Benet Brown. Oh yeah. Um, and listening to her podcasts and, and reading her work. And I used her a lot as a coach um, because she talks a lot about sports and, and that matches really well. But, you know, and this writing process, it was like, I have to go back to what I know. And here are the people that I would, you know, use for, for coaching. And I had to coach myself up um, yeah. to do this. And she helped me kind of find my voice. She doesn't know it, but she helped me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be sure to tell her the next time I have dinner with her. Yeah. Uh, which is a lie because I probably never will. Um, but so, so you, you know, wound up, I mean, the story goes, you, you know, wind up taking a plea deal. Um, how much of that, you know, could you talk about in the book or were, were your hands tied a little bit, you know, legally not being able to discuss certain things? So after kind of a period of the prosecution kind of running out of time to, um, to appeal my sentencing, uh, then I was kind of free um, to, to really talk about it. But we certainly did a lot of work, um, a lot of liable work uh, with Harper uh, and with my lawyer as well going through it. Um, so there were things that were taken out um, because it would have been you know, legal issues going forward. The hardest part for me that I learned, and this was devastating to be in front of a bunch of lawyers on Zoom, to have them say like, look, it's your word against them and you're a felon and that's it. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, I get yeah. it. Um, so that, that definitely changed the book um, going through it. 
Yeah. I mean, how does that sound when you hear something to say and, and paint you with that title of felon? I mean, do you identify as such or, or, or how do you, uh, how do you handle that? You know, I, I don't, I, um, I don't think I handle it very well. Is the, the answer, you know, I, you know, the first time it really came up was when we, after we, we were like, we can't stay in this person's house forever. <laughs> you know, we have to get our own apartment and then doing the application and having to check that box felon um, was, was really hard. And what I did on the application was take a New York Times article, Wall Street Journal article and Boston Globe. And I stapled it to the back of the application and be like, this is me. Um, you know, this is who I am. And I, I hope you still rent us the house. Um, and, and they did. And they called that out as something that was really important to them that I was so honest about it. So it yeah. made me be like a little bit more comfortable with being a felon. Yeah. So I mean, what's what's the main message that you want to, you know, share from your book? Um, you know, if, if you had to distill it down into a few key points, like what, you know, what do you want to make sure that everybody who reads this book takes away from it? Yeah, two things, two big things for me is one that it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to share your voice um, because I think that's really important. And as we've all been through with COVID and everything else, mental health is a big problem. And I go through some real mental health issues in this book and I'm still battling through it. And I think the more we can be open and honest about that, I think is huge. The second part is I was fully expecting Stanford to defend me and help me. Um, I, you know, committed 11 years of my life there, done everything I could for student athletes and for the school. And I'm, you know, there's incredible people at Stanford, incredible staff there, but overall the, the leadership of the school decided to, to do away with me. And I think that's something that everybody has to learn is that their boss can be on their side and, you know, the, the organization can be on your side, but at the same time you have to protect yourself and you have to really think and prepare yourself going through it um, and have gained that perspective. I certainly lost it um, when I was in it. And now that I can look back at it, you know, it's, it's, it's very powerful for me. Yeah. What about the importance of having, you know, a, a support system a network, you know, family, friends um, to surround yourself with, you know, is that a, uh, is that a potential message as well? Yeah. You know, it's, it's more of a message for me now. Um, rather than the book itself. Um, but for me now, that's the message that I live by. I mean, community is everything to me. Um, having, I work for a small engineering firm and, you know, there's five or six of us and it's amazing. You know, we're not going to fire each other through Zoom, you know, or fire each other through email. We're going to talk to each other and look each other in the eye and, and have those tough conversations that I would teach, you know, student athletes to do all the time. And, so having that sense of community is, is big that you can trust people around you. And so now I focus on putting myself in good situations with solid community. Like I live here in Half Moon Bay and, you know, that's how I'm going to look forward and, and how to really teach my kids to do as well. Yeah. Um, so you uh, no longer coaching. Um, were you working for this firm when you were coaching as well? Was it uh, a dual thing or was this no. like a re this is a reinvention post coaching? Reinvention, you know, one career died and another one was born again. Um, I think there's a phoenix somewhere in there. Um, but uh, yeah, that was, it was a total turnaround. And again, it was community and someone that wanted to take a chance on me um, and be willing to do anything I could to learn on the job and, and prove them right about me. Um, so it was, it was a big turn. Any other final thoughts you want to share with the audience about your book, John? 
You know, I, I think the, the biggest thing for me is with this book, it's really easy for me to go off and be angry at Stanford and to kind of sound bitter about it all together. But I have this kind of, I guess you would say, a love-hate relationship with Stanford because there's so many good people there, the student athletes um, for sure. And they went through, they were kind of collateral damage in all this. And I really feel for them. Um, the, the staff that are there that are incredible. The other coaches there are really incredible. Uh, and there's good people in that bad situation. It's just that upper leadership that, that kind of failed. So I think for me is, you know, even in a bad situation, really glom onto those good people and they'll always be there for you. All right. Very good. Well, uh, the book is Rigged Justice, How the College Admissions Scandal Ruined an Innocent Man's Life. We've been talking to author John Vandemore about the book. John, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you so much for having me.